Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that entices the vicar into a sinful relationship. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Haymond Reads. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector, and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. What would you do if you thought you had five years to live? After discovering a lump in her breast, Patricia Gaffney and her husband moved to the Pennsylvanian countryside, and Gaffney fulfilled her dream of writing a book. She said, Fear of failure had kept me from even trying to write, even though it was just about all I wanted to do since age eight. Now I was almost out of time, with nothing to show for my life. I was horribly depressed. Positive it really was curtains for me. I figured I had about two more years. Might as well go for it. Try to write the sort of book I had been having so much fun reading. Historical romance novels. She published Sweet Treason in 1989, which would be the first of 12 historical romances she would write. Even better, she beat cancer and is still writing books. The first of the Wickerly trilogy, To Love and to Cherish, came out on January 1st, 1995. To borrow the subtitle from Middlemarch, it's a study in provincial life. Set in 1854 in the fictional village of Wickerly, as one of the main characters writes in her diary, Every day, the beauty of this place seduces me a little more. Gaffney took inspiration from Thomas Hardy's Far From the Madding Crowd to create Wickerly and St. Giles Parish. The village of Wickerly is alive with Austinian characters and glimpses of heroes yet to start in their own books. Gaffney has said the favorite among her historical romances is To Love and to Cherish, and it's easy to see why. The romance centers on the vicar Christian Morrill and the wife of his childhood best friend, Anne Verlaine. Anne's husband, Geoffrey, a man struggling with illness who doesn't care for his wife and wishes to return to the venture of soldiering, and piques Christie's interest. Anne finds him equally fascinating and doesn't think her marriage should be any impediment to a relationship between them. Okay, so <laughs> we all love Gaffney, and I thought we could maybe just talk about when she first showed up on our radars. Um... As per usual, I got this from Charles. I don't remember, though. I think I remembered you talking about Forever and Ever. And then from there, I think I put it on my Goodreads and then eventually read To Love and to Cherish. I don't remember what spurred me to read To Have and to Hold, but I knew Charles had talked about it for a long time. It was my first bodice ripper. And so that's the second book in the series. And um, that one is a bodice ripper, though this one is not. I don't know if Charles had said something that was that sort of indicated to me that it was going to be... Not initially, I don't know if you have, there's like a good or a perfect first bodice ripper, but that one was the perfect one for me to read first because I loved it so much and it just really changed how I approached thinking about that subgenre and that plot. So I read To Have and to Hold, which is the second one first. And then I don't know what spurred me to read To Love and to Cherish other than like one, I think I had read a bunch of like a string of sort of like duds of books that were set in like London ballrooms, mm-hmm. which is usually why I go to like a village-based romance. And I knew that this one was also set in Wickerly. So I think I, I grabbed this one after a bunch of London ballroom romances that I didn't enjoy as much. Yeah, um, I've, I read To Have and to Hold a few years ago and it kind of completely rocked my world. I like can't stop talking about it. And I think that was that was definitely my first Gaffney and also probably one of my first bodice rippers too, now that I'm thinking about it. But it just kind of reoriented what I want out of romance novels. And since then I've become a really big Gaffney fan. I saw on a Dear Author interview, they kind of referred to Gaffney, Laura Kinsale, and Judith Ivory as like this holy trinity of writers. And I'm like, oh, these are my favorite writers. <laughs> but it's accurate, uh, I feel like. The holy just, trinity. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're just they're just so good. They might have said Golden Trio. I don't know if I just made it holy because of the, we're leading <laughs> to love to cherish. Yeah. They are now for us. <laughs> but yeah, huge fan. Very excited that we're doing an episode for every book in the Wickerly trilogy. I think this they each deserve their own episode, so this will be so fun. Yeah, we learned from our Cecilia Grant episode. We need to dedicate <laughs> They more need time. a whole episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as we always do, I will do a plot summary. But before that, I just wanted to issue a quick content warning. Well, like we wouldn't call this a bodice ripper. There is a rape in this book. So if you need to miss this one, totally understand when we'll catch you next time. We open on the deathbed of Lord D'Aubrey. The vicar, Christian Morrill, ministers to him. At the end, Lord D'Aubrey mistakes Christian, or Christy, for his son Geoffrey. Christy lies and tells him to go in peace. That same night, Geoffrey arrives with his wife Anne, and Christy's struck at how sick Geoffrey looks in contrast to the boy he knew 12 years ago. Geoffrey had a terrible relationship with his father and doesn't care about his death. He teases Christy about his looks and job, not quite believing he's the new vicar. Christy's father had been the vicar until his death four years ago. Jeffrey tells Christy he wants to buy another commission in the military after having sold his captaincy previously. Anne doesn't talk very much, although Christy is curious about her. We get the first of Anne's diary entries where she talks about how run down the manor is, and Lord Aubrey's method of shutting up most of the house has resulted in mold, mice, and dry rot. The tenants' homes desperately need repair as well. Jeffrey takes the first installment of his inheritance money, £400, to buy a horse. They bury Jeffrey's father, and Anne agrees with Jeffrey's assessment of Christie's archangel looks. Anne and Christie start to see each other in Wickerly. Everyone wonders about how Jeffrey's changed and what Anne is like. So lots of people show up to this gathering put on by Miss Weedy, one of the side characters. Anne gets there late because she got lost and puts up with the mayor's daughter being like, oh yes, Jeffrey, oh I mean Lord Aubrey, I keep forgetting. And Christie gets to wonder if Anne and Jeffrey really love each other. He walks her home and insists she calls him Christy. Jeffrey's horse arrives. He finds Anne while she's writing in her diary. He asks her to invite Christy for dinner that night, and she asks him if he's still taking his medicine. He tells people he has malaria, but he actually has syphilis. Jeffrey doesn't really give an answer, but remarks on how unfair it is that she's grown so beautiful from when they first got married. He kisses her and Anne gags because his breath smells so bad. He apologizes. Christy comes for dinner, and he and Anne talk before Jeffrey enters the room. Anne turns reserved and controlled in Jeffrey's presence. Jeffrey pesters Christy into a horse race, something they did as teenagers. Christy reluctantly agrees to the following afternoon. During the race, Jeffrey sees Christy will win, so he yanks his horse to the left, leaving Christy to veer out of the way into some brush where he's knocked unconscious. When he wakes up, Christy doesn't rat Jeffrey out because he's... Christy goes to the manor where Anne patches him up. He asks Anne if Jeffrey's ever done anything to make her feel unsafe. She immediately asks what Jeffrey's done. Christy denies anything, and they needle each other a bit, and Christy has his shirt off, and it's this lovely charge scene. Jeffrey has some terrible friends over later, and Anne asks Christy to stay for dinner, so he stays. In the following diary entry, we get how awful Jeffrey's friends were to Christy, mocking his profession and beliefs. What galls Anne the most is how Christy answered each question sincerely, and she couldn't believe how he couldn't see their mockery. After Christy leaves, Anne chases him down on the bridge, asking him why he let them do that. He responds and asks Anne if she thinks he's weak. Anne counters even Jesus got mad at the money changers, and Christy corrects her and says lenders, and they start to cool off a bit. He says, 
I hate being a symbol instead of a person. I'm the minister. I'm Reverend Moral, and so, depending on what your hopes and prejudices are, that makes me either a saint or a hypocrite. Christie admits he wanted to engage them in real conversation, but really it was naive of him to try to. Anne ends her entry by saying, He's better than I am, is Reverend Moral, but it's not because of God, it's because he was born that way. Jeffrey visits Christie and tells him his commission went through and he's to join the rifle brigade. He apologizes for the race. He admits to Christie he doesn't know why he did it. There's this revealing moment where Jeffrey says to Christie, I could almost envy you. Me? Christie blinked in surprise. Why? Jeffrey says, you've got a home. Then Christie says, but you've, and Jeffrey interrupts him, I've got a house, and I can't wait to get out of it. Jeffrey asks Christie to take care of Anne and his horse. We go back to Anne's diary entries, and she writes about the villagers. Everyone is courteous, but there is an underlying servitude to their courtesy that disturbs me. Anne is in a similar boat to Christy, where she's held apart from the rest of the community because of her position. Later on, Christy asks Anne to give penny readings, so they read from a novel out loud, like in public. Anne agrees, but says everyone should take turns. Everyone really likes this, and Anne's diary entries become sparser, and she wonders if it's because she's busier and happier. Christy tells Anne they can't see each other alone anymore because he cares for her. Anne counters her marriage is a farce, and she wouldn't let that obscenity stand between them. Christy says it must stand in his way, and after Anne asks him if he's afraid of judgment, like God's judgment, Christy says the judgment and pain are already with him. They stay friends. They meet again in a few days in the graveyard at night. Anne discovers Christy crying because a villager, Tolliver Dean, had died that afternoon. Christy tried to console him and his family, but felt his answers didn't help Tolliver or his family. Anne reassures him, and when Christy tries to leave Anne, it entices him back, saying she wants to tell him the story of her life. As a child, she lived in Ravenna with her parents until her mother died when she was seven. Afterwards, she and her father traveled through Italy, France, the Netherlands, and only occasionally visited England. Her father had a lot of mistresses growing up, and Anne didn't like them and grew up to be cynical. She met Geoffrey when she was 20, and he knew Anne's father had come into a great deal of money, and he pursued Anne like a storm and proposed within two weeks. They married in Scotland. A week after the wedding, they returned to London, only to discover Anne's father had died in an accident and hadn't made financial provisions for her. All his fortune went to a distant cousin. After this conversation, Christie agrees to stay friends, and then he leaves. Pretty soon after that, a letter arrives from the war office, and Christie takes it. The hospital ship Jeffrey was on sank along with 30 other ships. Anne falls into a depression for a while as time moves through several diary entries. Sebastian Verlaine is Jeffrey's heir, and he tells Anne she can stay at the manor until she's ready to go. A month later, Anne runs into Christie on a bridge, and she invites him to look at her horse who recently had a foal. They talk for a bit and then kiss. Christie confesses his love and wants to marry, which Anne thinks is silly because she's an atheist and can't be a minister's wife. Besides, she doesn't think people like her. She proposes an affair instead. They each part, promising the other they'll get their way. There's a crossroads in the village, and this becomes their spot where they leave each other presents and notes at this location. Christy writes terrible poetry that makes Anne cry. He says God had sent her to test him, he sometimes believed. Was she the instrument of his soul's damnation? If so, why did she feel like salvation? It was enough to drive a man to drink. Eventually, Christy invites Anne to his home so she can spend the night. They have dinner, talk, tour the home. As they make out, Christy proposes again and asks him to be her lover. They're at an impasse, so Anne says she'll see him the following morning. 
Christy says he can't and is embarrassed to tell her the exact reason. She wheedles it out of him and he says he promised Miss Weedy that he would, quote, take on all of her worries since she has to have surgery the next day. So he plans to pray for three hours during that time. And overcome by the tenderness and care he shows to his parishioners, says it's the last damn straw and yes, she'll marry him. They have sex and Anne goes home in the morning. Some more time passes and Christy settles on marrying Anne in November, a year after Jeffrey's death. They don't tell anyone about their engagement, although Christy plans to announce it in March. Jeffrey shows up alive at the manor. Anne can't believe it and asks why Jeffrey didn't write to inform them he had been alive. Jeffrey lies and says he lost his memory, although Anne sees through that. Christy shows up and Anne excuses herself. Jeffrey acknowledges he had a flare-up of malaria and Christy wonders if Jeffrey would find it freeing if he knew that Christy knew. He leaves and finds Anne at the gravestone they had put up for Jeffrey. Anne says there was never any hope for them and Christy leaves. Christy writes Anne a letter, but Jeffrey gets it. He finds Anne and rapes her. After, Jeffrey tells her that she can't contract syphilis from him because his disease is past that stage. He asks her if she loves Christy, and she says yes. He says the doctor told him he only has a year or two left. Jeffrey leaves, and Anne, after thinking about how he parted, chases after him, finding a servant who said Jeffrey had a gun and was going hunting. Anne runs to the stable and finds Jeffrey in his horse's stall. She pleads with him, but he doesn't listen and tells her Christy is a good man. He then shoots himself. Anne runs for help and pleads for someone to get Christy. We then jump to Christy's perspective where the doctor tells him there has been a cave-in at the Gelder mine and some miners are trapped. Christy jumps on his horse to get to the mine. When he arrives, he learns all but one miner has escaped, Tranter Fox. He's trapped. Christy heads down to the mine so he can speak to him and absolve him of his sins. He does, and after they sing a song, the rocks move again and Tranter is free and they climb out together. Anne rushes to the mine and she and Christy talk. Anyway, they get married and the whole village loves them. (laughs) Okay, so the first thing I wanted to talk about was Anne's diary entries. Um, Most of the story is told through third person where we take turns seeing from Anne or Christie's perspectives. Some of the story, though, comes from Anne's diary entries, obviously told in first person. Anne writes in her diary and characters will even interrupt her as she's in the middle of an entry. The diary entries make Anne the narrator in those sections, so the story filters through her perspective. Gaffney said this about the diary entries from an interview with their author. Anne Verlaine, except for being prettier, smarter, younger, and nicer, is me. I was writing about myself, in first person, even via her journals. Anne's journals were the most fun I'd had writing up to that point, and it was because, turns out, first person is my natural voice. I feel like there's like a few things we could talk about from this. First, that Gaffney found first person more natural to her, and later she goes on to write other books that are completely in first person. Then with the diary entries, do you think this makes it more Anne's story? Or with first person, you get that more limited and intimate connection with the character. How does this narrative shift affect the story? So I love the quote you read about the first person aspect of this. POV decisions are one of my little fascinations in romance. And Anne's diary is one of those things, as soon as it happened, I thought like, why don't more authors do this? I think I've read maybe two books that have any sort of diary aspect to them. But also when I was first reading it, I thought we're getting Anne's diary. This is going to be like the first person section in the midst of a third person section. Like, And I had sort of a model of what I thought that would look like because um, I was thinking of epistolary novels where it's like that's the sort of normal where you're having like a combined first person, third person thing where some of them are going to be letters. 
And then I realized that Gaffney totally pulls off something different with the diaries because there's still like this mystery to Anne's feelings, despite us having access to most of her intimate thoughts. And I realized after I sort of passed this judgment on what I thought the diary section was going to be like when I first read this, that it's accurate that in a diary, you don't get every thought someone has. And so Gaffney's able for there still to be a mystery of like, what's going on with Jeffrey? What's his illness? Like, what's the extent of his abuse? Because Anne's audience for her diary is herself. And she doesn't have her fully formed thoughts about Christy either. Because again, I was thinking like, if someone's just writing their diary, like we're not even having like the communication stuff that we care about so much in romance where you're expressing your thoughts to someone else. Um, she's not hiding information to create tension. She's just sort of processing the, her selective thoughts, um, indulging thoughts that are joyful, but then also Anne's not necessarily like lingering on thoughts that are going to cause her pain, be them about her past with Jeffrey or the tenuous future with Christy. And when I was reading it again, I thought about the scene in Clueless where Cher is shopping and processing her feelings about Josh. And I think voiceover is a good, a voiceover in a film for a first person character is a good like sort of metaphor for how the diary works where Cher is like narrating her feelings. She's not sure how she feels. And then we have the big moment where she's like, I love Josh. And the, the fountain goes up. <laughs> and the peak of this, that's the peak of the scene when the water leaps out behind her. But then immediately after we shift to more of like a third person view of Cher where she's like nervous around Josh and it flips back to the normal third person. So you see that sort of like gap between how we're in Cher's mind and how we're watching Cher. And I feel like that happens with Anne. And so we get a more holistic picture of Anne. Mm -hmm. um, but Gaffney's still able to pull off there being like questions about how Anne is feeling, which I was surprised at when I first read it because I thought, oh, I was like, actually, this will be, what will this be like where we're not dealing with an audience for a first person narration? It, the audience is herself, but it, it, obviously when you have an audience of yourself, there's still gaps in communication. It's just between Anne's thoughts and her, able, her ability to articulate them. Yeah, and have you ever written in a diary and you kind of have this thing where you're writing for like a future person to discover your diary <laughs> and so you like leave things out or you're like, that's boring. And then I kind of feel like there's maybe like, I'm not necessarily saying that Anne is doing that, but like I think that there's kind of like a little bit of an awareness that, that this is something that people could potentially at some point read. Whereas like if you're like in your head, like at a first person narration, like that's mm -hmm. like not accessible to anyone except for the heroine of Uncertain Magic by Laura Kinsale. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I wonder if that's like maybe part of it. Yeah, I think for the diaries, I don't think we would have under, I wouldn't have understood the depth of Anne's self-loathing and loneliness without the diary entries. Like Christy seems like he can tell fairly early on that something is very, very wrong, but I think I don't think anyone else in Wickerly would have noticed that without watching her and Jeffrey interact in a way that they only mostly do in private. Mm -hmm. And then Gaffney also uses like the length of the diary entries in a really interesting way. So the early entries are extremely long. Uh, they're very deeply sad, but they're kind of musing and kind of jocular at points. So she's very bored. She's very lonely, but she has like all the time in the world to write in her diary. So when she falls in love, they get much shorter. She has this new focus and she notes that it's easier to write when she's unhappy. But then you get to kind of like that third stage when Jeffrey dies or when she believes that Jeffrey dies. Her diary entries are like bare bones. And I think that's possibly because like grief, like particularly such a complicated grief, I don't even think she would know how to describe how she felt in detail. I think you're go feeling like you're going through a fog at this point. So like, how do you put thoughts down when you're not even sure you could articulate them to yourself? 
Yeah. I love that Gaffney doesn't flip to, like, when the diary entries get shorter. Like, she has the option to flip to Christy's point of view or Anne's, like, third-person point of view, which she does write in sometimes. Mm -hmm. But we just get these, like, little, like, segmented diaries, and it's like Anne is just falling in so deep so fast. Mm -hmm. And you see, like, the dates on them, the distance between them. And I, I love that. I love that decision because, again, like, it's, she has the option for more detail, but she, like, tells more without the detail. Yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like the diary's a way to track Anne's emotional journey. And I feel like Gaffney will, like you were mentioning, mentioning, like, the entries get shorter sometimes where she, like, she has, like, a chunk of time she needs to get through. But it's more interesting to get it filtered through, like, how Anne's feeling about those events that are happening as opposed to just, like, info dumping, like... Well, then Christmas happened, and then this happened, and then she attended these things. It was like how Anne feels about those activities, and we can track how she, how happy she is, or how sad she is by like how much she's like brooding or musing. <laughs> yeah, and you need like a certain passage of time for the courtship, like because yeah. they're they're like there's like a months long courtship, right? But I think like the day to days of that courtship would not be something that we would necessarily need to bear witness to. It's kind of like in Stormfire, like when there was like trying to condense like a a longer period of time into something shorter. Like it's much more impactful seeing that through Anne's point of view and not necessarily having them jump from uh scale up really quickly. They're still very small moments but those are the moments that she picks out that really mean something to her. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it also kind of resonates with the audience too. It also reminds me of the, I think it's New Moon, the Twilight book, where it's like the months pass. Yeah. When Bella <laughs> Wait, is sad. Is that the one where she's looking at the window and the yeah, just tracks are around? <laughs> That's Anne. It's great. Honestly, it's a, yeah, good, a good depiction of just being so out of it. Right. It's like time is passing very quickly and it's like, it, it's passing very quickly and also very slowly because nothing is happening, but everything is happening because you're processing. It's like, yeah. Mm. I get it, Bella. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So in that same interview with your author, Gaffney said, except for the Wakerly trilogy, I don't think I've ever set two books in the same time and place. Because this is the first book, I think we should talk about Wakerly itself. Like I mentioned in the introduction, Gaffney drew on inspiration from Far From the Madding Crowd for this book. And then also from the author's note, The middle decades of the 19th century were the golden age of rural England, the idyllic time before the agricultural boom faltered and working people had to leave the country for jobs in the industrialized cities. Thomas Hardy immortalized this period in Far From the Madding Crowd, and Wickerly and St. Giles' Parish take inspiration from that sweet, melancholy book. Then more broadly from that same interview, she mentioned Jane Austen, George Eliot, and Thomas Hardy, obviously, as influences for her historical romances. Do you see these influences on Wickerly? How does knowing Gaffney draws on Wickerly again for other books affect your reading experience? So when I was reading it, I mostly noticed the connections to Middlemarch, because I think I just, I'm always looking for Middlemarch things. I think Grant, uh, Cecilia Grant, also um, her series makes me think of Middlemarch. I think I love the idea of like creating Wickerly as a place like Thomas Hardy's Wessex. So Wessex is a fictional county that Thomas Hardy creates. He grounds it in a lot of real places. So the cities and parishes within Wessex might be real and like the churches that people go to might be real. And it's set in a similar geography to Jane Austen, so Southwest England. But it's distinctly like an invented conceptual place. And like in the history of the novel, this is a very like new thing for Hardy to be doing where he's like not... It's like a new novel place, a new conceptual place. That's Hardy's like on the forefront of that. 
Also, I learned that Hardy's dog was named Wessex. I just thought that was cute. <laughs> um, but for far the, from the batting crowd, um, which I love that film and that novel so much. I've seen the Julie Christie adaptation. So that character, Bathsheba, is very like Emma Woodhouse coded. And um, she's imp- independent, self-important. And those traits serve her role as a property owner in this Wessex area. But then they endanger her when she starts to interact with men who eventually want to see her ruined. Like the traits that sort of make her a bad wife, make her a good landowner. And I think Anne has an element of that too, where she starts from a place of good faith, like in her life pre the novel, like when she's marrying Jeffrey, she kind of thinks that her, the extent of badness has happened to her with her father. It's like her father like took her around Europe and she hasn't been settled. It's like Jeffrey is this sort of like light that comes into her life. And she's like, sure, like this, this could work. This will be like a new life for myself. And then very quickly things devolve and then things devolve past even like her wildest expectations for badness with Jeffrey's illness and the pain that sort of keeps pushing her further. I see that sort of arc as similar to Bathsheba, where Bathsheba thinks there's like a, a, a limit to what can happen to her in her, what she confronts. And it keeps going past that. And it's like, how can we how can we stop this sort of like tumbleweed of badness that's beyond your wildest conception at the, at the beginning of, of your adulthood? Yeah, so I remember I read in uh, Gaffney's author's note that uh, she started to love and to cherish uh, kind of intending it to be a standalone, but then like she was kind of married to a lot of the side characters and wanted to see how things played out. We'll talk more about this later in other episodes, I'm sure, but returning to the same pool of characters throughout these books makes them really shine. And it's not just the way that you would in like a series of books where it's like set in a similar place with similar heroes and heroines. She like brings in the side characters like so much more, like where they get their own arcs. Not just the left interest, but you get like a glimpse of like Sophie Dean, who's going to be the third heroine, Sebastian Verlaine, the hero of the next book. Quote unquote. Um, heroes in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think uh, what's really, really fascinating to me, though, is besides just like getting like all this beautifully built out, extremely well fleshed out world is that like I think she kind of does something more than that, like where I feel like each book has like a big specific arc. So I see the Wickerly trilogy being kind of about like three sects of power in like mm. English provincial life. So to love and to cherish is God, to have and to hold is prison and forever and ever is labor. I think it's so brilliant how Gaffney grounds us in this idyllic setting away from the world of the tongue and raises the stakes piecemeal throughout each book. So there's not really such a thing as a sleepy community when it still has cruel aristocrats, petty jealousies, tragic spinsters, ruinous gossip and dangerous minds idyllic is like a word you can say but it never none of them feel idyllic i think this is important too with the connection to wessex and thomas hardy um because mm-hmm. i think so often in romance novels we see like london is bad and when people go to the country they get fixed mm-hmm. it's like if people can get out of the corrupting force of london they will they'll like return to the earth they will turn to some version of england that is better for them and I love a lot of books that like that. That's actually one of my favorite plots is when a rake becomes a farmer. Um, but in, I think it's important for Hardy. Like, I think people sometimes will romanticize the Wessex of Hardy. It's like terrible things happen to characters in yeah. Wessex in Hardy books. Like tragedy strikes them. And it's more about like the nervousness about modernity. Like that's the issue with London. But modernity can affect everywhere. Like modernity and like industry and people who slip through the cracks of modernity. And I think that comes up a little bit with Christy and Anne because Christy struggles to grasp some of the danger that Anne is in when she's 
around Jeffrey and she's around people who don't trust her. He's trusted by everyone around him. He's liked by everyone who's around him. He's not really in danger of violence or like losing his home at any point. And like, how does Anne fit into this new world that's coming into the provincial life? She's only in West, or she's not only in Wickerly, not Wessex, because of some like modern world coming, like her ability to travel throughout Europe, her family's ability to relocate to England, all these sort of things that like left her without a community. These exist because of modernity, and now she's without a community in Wickerly, like sort of desperately trying to find one. And Christie's like, take the one that's here, and he doesn't get that. That's that's more of a process than he re- he realizes. And so yeah, the Wickerly, I, I like what Chell said about it not being idyllic but it is provincial and these characters can care deeply about where they live and not have a totally romanticized view of the setting which i think happens a lot in in historical romance where the country is is the sweet place that bad things don't happen it's like that's bad things happen everywhere um and you can you can still have romance novels where bad things happen wait till we get to book two (laughs) (laughs) okay i yeah i really liked what you said emma i'm like i don't know what to add i was just like my next thought or point just because we're talking about wickerly and i feel like there's kind of like a larger cast of characters like in this setting that we keep coming back to sometimes i will listen to book reviews and people will use like oh this is kind of a flat character as like a negative about this book but like ian forster came up with this concept of like a flat character isn't like a bad character and this kind of essential ingredient mm-hmm. is an essential ingredient to your novel. So it's like, you know, that can be comic relief. They can reveal something about the main character. Like there's lots of reasons to have these kinds of characters. And I feel like that's kind of like how Wickerly is populated. Like you have the mayor and then like his daughter who like her, the only thing we know about her is she just thinks that she's closer to, like, all these men in her, like, peer group than she actually was. Or, like, the spinster, Miss Weedy. It's just very much, like, a good snapshot of life in town where you just, like, see these these people in your day-to-day. Yep. Bringing up Ian Forster's Emma Bates. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me so frustrated. I'm like, this he wasn't bad. It's just, like, do you have a dynamic character or a flat character? I love a flat character. Yes. Um, so the I, I think the easiest way to explain that, so it's from aspects of the novel. A round character, every time you meet them, they surprise you. And a flat character, every time you meet them, they do the same thing. Yeah. And it's, like, a, a main character can be a flat character. So Forster points out that Dickens... Everyone in Dickens is flat. Yeah. So it's like, even if you're a main character, you're doing the same thing. Like Pip as a child in Great Expectations is the same as Pip as an adult. His circumstances change. Pip never surprises us. And it, you can sort of sum him up in one character, which is that he is he's waiting on his expectations. He's All of his decisions are based on this like promise of a will. And so I think you can be a lead romance character and be a flat character. I've come up with examples before. I had a TikTok prompt about this once. I was like, who are your favorite flat characters in romance? But now I can't remember. I kind of, is Christy kind of, because he never surprises me. Like, I think we'll talk about this more. Like, so like by that metric. I don't even know if Anne, I I mean, I think Anne is dynamic. Like she's, there's lots to Anne. Yeah, like she's going through stuff. like central, like central, like self doesn't change. Like she is, she is Anne through and through and she... She, she doesn't surprise me because it's like I she just gets put in different situations and then like is, is steely and is uh, right. like ca- capable and all these things. So I think I, sometimes I think ro- flat characters work better in romance because this is like the nature of genre fiction that you you take a character and you make things happen to them and they approach things the same like right as themselves. Right. 
um, because it's, it's not a it's not like a, a journey of a of a person. It's a journey to like together, yeah, to fit together, trying to make the circumstances work for this couple. But I would also hear arguments the other way. Yeah, no, I kind <laughs> of agree. I don't know if tell spills differently. I think you're right. Like I would definitely say um, I I'm trying to think of any character in the entirety of Wickerly that I would not call a flat character. I I guess maybe you could make an argument for Sebastian. I'd say um, Sebastian. Yeah, from the yeah. second book. He's the one who like turns the most. Like it's uh-huh. not just circumstances changing. But I think well, I'll think about this when I reread it for for next episode. Yeah. But yeah, for definitely absolutely 100% for Christy and I I think for Anne too. I think like I always knew who Anne was. And yeah, I think the people, I think that's kind of what you were getting at too, Beth, earlier when you were saying the way that people use the word flat character, I think people use it incorrectly to mean like boring or yeah. like, and that's not really what it means. Cause like Anne's not boring. Anne is like the best character in this book, I think. Anne yeah, is, she is like fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, I could, I could totally see what you're saying that. But yeah, flat characters are good. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of feel like, when you have this town and like machinations, it's almost more helpful to have flat characters, and it's just like circumstances are happening to them. Like that kind of feels like the structure. Yeah. That's why it works so well in Dickens. Like, like yes. I think Miss Weedy is such a Dickensian character. Like oh, every time totally. she shows up, <laughs> yeah, it's like we know exactly how she's going to act. We know she's what she's going to ask of Anne and Christy. We know like what her behavior signals as like people entering the community. That's just like, oh, and you also, it's that feeling of like, you recognize her as like an older woman in a community and like her anxiety feels very familiar. That like reads very Dickensian to me. Although as I get older, I'm like, she's just in her forties, right? <laughs> like, there's, there's Mrs. Weedy and there's Miss Weedy. Right. Miss Weedy, So yes. Miss Weedy is in yes. her forties. But Mrs. Mrs. Weedy is, is like, yeah, uh, yes. Older. It's like a Miss Bates, Mrs. Bates. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, since we're kind of talking about our three main characters, I'll throw Jeffrey in there. I wanted to talk about their physical descriptions because they're all kind of like very different from each other. And I feel like it adds to the characterization. So I'm going to read each character description and then we'll just kind of talk about about them after. So when we meet Jeffrey, this is how he's described. A tall, dark-haired man stood in the threshold, sallow skin, sunken cheeks black burning eyes in the hollow sockets for one grotesque moment christy thought it was edward that's uh jeffrey's father returned from the dead in the semblance of his youth and then another quote again from christy's perspective at 16 jeffrey had been a strapping muscular youth when they wrestled together they had almost always fought to a draw and on the rare occasions when christy had won it was only because he was taller now Jeffrey looked as if a well-placed blow from a child could knock him down, but his charming, wolfish grin hadn't changed. And then this is Anne's description. Christy studied Anne over the rim of his cup, trying to fathom exactly what it was about her that had intrigued him so. Jeffrey had told him that she had lived most of her life in Italy, where her father had made a modest living as a painter. That made sense. Her accent was British, and so was her roses and cream complexion. Now that she had lost what he thought of as her city pallor, but everything else about her was emphatically un-English, from her dress to her hair to the way she listened when some spoke to her, alertly, directly, without affection, or excessive demureness. The clothes she wore were respectable but a trifle odd, a little off, not quite what Christy imagined was the fashion in London nowadays, 
and she wore them with a careless panache that fit with his, perhaps naive, image of impoverished bohemianism on the continent. And then our last description is about Christy, and this is Jeffrey speaking. How have you been, you ruddy old sod? You look... He stood back and made a show of examining him head to toe. Christ, you look like an archangel. He ruffled Christy's blonde hair. And then from Anne's diary entry, she's talking about Lord Aubrey's funeral. The archangel, Reverend Morrill, Jeffrey's nickname for his friend, has stuck with me because the man truly does resemble Michael or Gabriel in a Renaissance painting, or even more, one of Blake's copper etchings. Despite their, like, opposite coloring, I feel like Jeffrey and Christy resembled each other as teenagers to the point Lord Aubrey mistakes Christy for Jeffrey on his deathbed. We've already kind of talked about this, and I don't, like, <laughs> don't want to reduce this down to, like, the man who went to the city versus the man who stayed in the countryside, but what do you make of this? And then as for Anne, I feel like, especially from Christy's view, it shows how she's an outsider. I think this is one of the things that stands out the most to me about this book in general is that the way that Jeffrey was described in this book is very jarring to me. So it's very grotesque and not typically in line with how aristocratic men are written, like the smell of his breath, his sallow skin, the way he seems to be sort of melting into himself. It reminded me a lot of how Jones, the young interloper, was written in Gaywick. But while Jones's hygiene was poor because he was young and neglected uh, in that book, Jeffrey has syphilis. So when we see Jones uh, in Gaywick, we're seeing him through his rival Robbie's eyes. So Robbie is not inclined to look kindly on Jones, which is where I think some of the meanness of this description comes from. But both Christy and Anne confirm this sort of external rot from Jeffrey. They're both repulsed by him like explicitly multiple times. I think in hands less deft, this would have felt clunky, particularly because Christy is this beacon of all that is good and nice in the world, while Jeffrey is this fetid, rotting abuser that dogs Anne throughout her marriage. When Anne reveals his illness to both the reader and Christy, because we don't know this for a long time, Jeffrey is cast in a much more sympathetic light. So like none of his cruelties or misdeeds are negated, but there's something very tragic about him finally finding a purpose, a calling that makes one distinguished uh, like he did when he enlisted and then losing it in such a devastating way. I still, though, I don't like it. Like I can't, I can't really find fault with it. Like I see why it's there, but I think in particularly the the contrast between Jeffrey and Christy, I think that's not something that I enjoy. Like I think that it's too much of a like cuz Christy is pretty much faultless. Like yeah. I think there's one flaw that I can point to. It's like one decision that he makes later that I think is pre- like a little bit boneheaded or like maybe not the decision itself, but like the reasoning behind the decision. But this godly archangel, beautiful man uh, contrasted with uh, Jeffrey, like who's dying. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know quite how I feel about it, except that I've been thinking about it quite a lot. And I think why I don't hate it as much as I think I would in other books is because of the way that Gaffney really brings it home in the third act, which is, I think, something that we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, that it's, it's, that she complicates it is, I think, important to the book yes. working. Um, uh-huh. That, because it, it's like, Jeffrey is like villain in quotes. Like, he, he's structurally the villain, but personally, you're like, this is, you can't, you don't want to call him that because like, he's been dealt this bad hand and is going through so much. And yeah, the contrast is messy. But I, I do think with Anne as an outsider, I think 
thinking about the contrast, like her looking at Christy versus Jeffrey, if it becomes like more personal, because I think that's also like closing it contrasting, but also closing the gap between the two of them. And I think Anne as an outsider is important for that, where like, again, in these historical romance novels, like we, we have this big gap between like the church and the country and the city and the military. And like, these are two realms that don't meet and we are often pitted against each other. But for Anne, she's looking at them from like a non-English perspective where she's like, these are these are sort of two sides of the same coin that are next to each other. And I'm drawing these connections. It's like, I'm seeing Christy as my husband if on another path. And so it's not, there's not this big gap, but I think Anne's able to do that because of her non-English upbringing. And I think also even Christy sees himself as like distance from Jeffrey, but she sees them, these two men have having the same origin. And she's one, she wonders how did these two men start in the same place and end up in different places? It seems important that the gap is smaller to Anne because she sees, she has, it becomes like a triangle with Anne instead of a binary because she's like looking at them. I like that you mentioned where they're coming from, like where did this kind of divulge? Because it's like mentioned very briefly in the book itself, but like there's this point that Christy remembers when they're children, when, uh, because Christy has, you know, his very loving parents and he remembers this time where Jeffrey, we think he's about 13, he runs away from the estate and he comes to Christy's house and he begs Christy's parents to let them stay and he's crying. And then Christy remembers like, that's the first time I remember seeing him cry. Like, we never talked about it. I never saw him cry again. And Gaffney doesn't make it explicit what happens between Jeffrey and his father, like, that night. But I think you can kind of draw your own conclusions because when you, uh, at the beginning of the story, when they're talking about Jeffrey's father dying, it seemed kind of, it seems callous the way that Jeffrey, like, does not care, is completely not willing to hold his hand, doesn't want to see him. But there's something that we don't know and something that we'll never know. And I think that has impacted the way that Jeffrey, like, who he's become, like, how he sees things, not to excuse who he's become or what he's done, but, like, there is something. Um, It's interesting to think about. Yeah, he's, like, such a tragic figure. And I like what you're saying, like, that Gaffney just kind of hints at his past. And I think that's really good writing because it makes we just in our own imaginations do all the work without her having to, like, lay it out explicitly in the text. There is this conversation that Jeffrey and Christy have before Jeffrey. He's got another commission. He's about to join the Rifle Brigade. And, like, that conversation I read at the end of it, he says, yeah, my dad made sure that this wasn't a home for me. Like, it's just a house. And it just does so much work. And yeah, this this reading at this time, I feel like I just felt so much more for Jeffrey. And also, I feel like in another book, he could have been like the romance hero. Like, all like he's a terrible dad. Like, he's not very nice. Like, he's kind of rakish. He could have been the hero easily. Yeah, there's no decision yeah. that he makes that a, a hero of a historical romance would yeah. have made. Yeah. At some point. Right. I think the and only it, thing is they don't get syphilis. Yeah. Right. But I think also, I think we see this in the second book as like a hint for that is like the level of undoing that has to be undone to fix this title and this house. Mm. Like it's, I, and I think there's a, that's a big theme where like certain houses and certain titles are like cursed with either their level of debt or something more metaphysical where like you have to undo this trauma. And so even so the, the heir when Sebastian Verlaine comes in, and he um, takes over the house. It's like there's still some element built into this title that has to be undone, even though he's outside of this direct line between Jeffrey and Jeffrey's dad. And so I, th- I think that speaks to 
again, that sort of unspoken level of trauma associated with this title and house, the level of undoing that we have to see for in order for it to be fixed. Because I, I think that that is a theme of the second book is fixing this title. But it, it, it's pretty extreme, the level that it has to go through. And it seems like there, there is no solution for Jeffrey to, to fix the title for himself, in part for his own actions and in part because of just the, the hand that he's been dealt. Do we just want to talk about Jeffrey's return and third act breakup here since we're talking about Jeffrey? Yeah, so I guess um, kind of like the, the big thing that happens towards the end of the book and this kind of is also like the third act breakup is so that both Anne and Christy believe that Jeffrey is dead. And so that's kind of when they get together. But there's this huge upheaval when they find out that's actually not the case. And then Jeffrey returns. So I guess kind of like to start off, like what kind of like stuck out to you about that moment? I feel like you, we you just, know Jeffrey. Oh, no, you go ahead, Emma. I was just going to say, we, you just yeah. know Jeffrey's going to come back. I don't think yeah, it's I was, a surprise. That was the same point I made. I was like, I was trying to remember if I was surprised by it. Yeah. I don't think I was. Um, <laughs> but it's like, you know that- They got together to too early. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, you're like, like how, you're saying, how many pages do I have? <laughs> the way this book's going. Um, yeah. I feel like- And it's like too, it's too good so fast. Or like, what's the, the conflict has to be big and Jeffrey is that conflict. Um, so I don't think I was surprised when he came back. But I guess I, I do love with the thing that is the third act breakup. I mean, I, I, I will defend a third act breakup for a stupid reason, easily. Mm-hmm. But I do love when the third act breakup is like, this this is, a, this is a problem that has no solution. And that's kind of how Anne and Christy both talk about it from different angles. Because he I think Anne is the one who's like more immediately like, this is the end. It's like, there is no solution here. And he, he sort of suggests that maybe they be friends. Like, how do we say, how do we say in each other's lies? And Anne is like, we this is not an option. Like, we cannot... We cannot do anything while Jeffrey is here. We can't even be friendly, really. And it's like, I love that. But there, there is no solution. And the solution the solution only comes through Jeffrey's death, which is like, no, neither Christy nor Anne would like wish that on him. So it is the solution that like comes with, like, with, with terrible consequences and they have to deal with those consequences. I like the extent to which it, the solution is bad. It's not neat at all. Yeah, I don't feel like triumphant. I feel like when the third act breakup happens, you are just kind of like, oh, okay, we're going to get to the solution quickly. But with Jeffrey, I don't feel that way. I, I don't know. He's just, I've already said this, but he is just so tragic. I feel like <laughs> it's hard not to have like a lot of sympathy for him. Yeah. So something that I was thinking about too, is that like, there's this part where because we were kind of like talking before the episode talking about like if Jeffrey really loved Anne I think you could see it as Jeffrey did like really love Anne like he had like very loving feelings for her um my point of view is kind of like so I think of this moment earlier in the book where Anne is looking at this character named Sophie Dean so she's the mine owner she's very young very beautiful she's like 20 so Anne's not that old Anne's like 24 but like Anne is thinking like looking at her and thinking about like everything that she's lost like she wants to be 20 again she wants to have that time back she wants to have done something differently she wanted to have made different choices she didn't want to be where she was she wanted to be young beautiful and carefree and i honestly think that's what jeffrey sees when he because like what enraged him and creates this like big conflict in the end is that he finds that letter that christy sent Anne confessing their love and but even before that i think he's kind of looking at both Anne and christy like maybe separately I don't think that he necessarily has like a deep love, like it was like a romantic love for either of them. I think it could be like, uh, it could be a love of a kind, but I think that he's just really thinking about like, 
all that he's lost, all that he's wasted, the person that he could have been or what he would have wanted to be. Like, I think that that's what's really like, oh, just like really hits it hard because like to, to think of slowly dying for years and you know it's coming and you know it's like showing on your face and body and the way that people are reacting to you. There's also kind of like the tragedy too. Like he didn't like Wickerly. He was never at home in Wickerly. But like when he was fighting in wars, like that's when he had like a sense of purpose because he was able, I guess that was something that he was good at. I don't have much to say about the particular conflict, but like I, I think that that's what that meant to him specifically. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. It just really makes makes me very sad. But yeah, let's we'll talk about kind of a little bit about that letter too, because I said earlier that Christy has a f- not a flaw, but he makes like a boneheaded decision, and I think maybe not the decision, but like his reasoning behind it is like so he decides that he's going to leave Anne like right when Jeffrey comes home, he's going to leave Wickerly because he's like, I can't be around you. And he said, I know Jeffrey won't hurt you, which when I read that, I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me because Jeffrey has hurt her in the past. Like, I don't think there's any like accidental or not. Like Jeffrey is not necessarily the most stable person. Like, well, he And Christy eat. knows that because Anne told uh, told him that he yes. hit, hit her once before. So yeah, he hit her and she like fell down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And I think that he had like a very, he was felt very guilty about that, but that's not necessarily so there's like no, nothing in Jeffrey has like changed from that person. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very strange. And then it does kind, kind of come back to play into Christy making like another assumption that does actually like end up hurting Anne in a way that he will never know, which is when he sends he sends his goodbye letter to Anne, he marks it personal, thinking that that will stop Jeffrey from reading it because Jeffrey wouldn't just open a letter. <laughs> so when Jeffrey finds this letter, this is where he's like confronted with the fact that like, even though they're not going to do anything about it, Anne and Christy are deeply in love with each other and they both see him as a burden. And, and this is kind of like when he assaults Anne not saying that that's absolutely that's not Christie's fault for that happening but right. like I think the fact that the assumption that Jeffrey wouldn't read the letter the assumption that Jeffrey wouldn't hurt her both of those are things that aren't true he does hurt her he does read the letter Anne never tells him I don't believe like that's something that Anne kind of keeps secret and I don't know I think it might be due to some like last minute like she doesn't want to tarnish Jeffrey's name further than it has been, or maybe it's right. just something so deeply personal. I don't quite remember if there were there was a reasoning or what that would be, but I mean, I could see why she wouldn't. I think connected to Jeffrey, so the the Crimean War. I think I, I mean it's also like Gaffney, like it's the year that she said it in, so it's like this is the conflict that he's in. But mm-hmm. I don't, so I don't know which decision came first, like writing a, a soldier who's going to the Crimea. Or this is the conflict that a soldier would go to. It is very like distinct historically from like the Napoleonic Wars, mm-hmm. where its rhetoric around the time is not dissimilar. It's a smaller scale, but to like Vietnam in the United States, where there's like enthusiasm for it, and then um, pretty quickly it's like critiques become like this is stupid. This is a stupid conflict for people to die for. It's like this is a. I think England ends up winning the side, but it's like for what? It's like sort of, the, and it's also one of the first like modern warfare. So that the the level of death is a lot higher during this period. So it's like I, I think it makes sense that he's in Crimea as a conflict because Jeffrey's like seeking this glory that I think would be associated with earlier nineteenth century wars, like where he has that available to him. This like 
romanticizing of like the Napoleonic Wars and like growing up and like having that image of England as this powerhouse mm-hmm. and then going to this war that ultimately is going to have this like fruitlessness because I think that's a theme of Jeffrey's like all these decisions where he's trying to move forward don't go anywhere and it's like it, it's just his life is fruitless and it's like this is what he has to deal with is that there is no there's no upside for him there's no there's no solution for him I would be interested to know which which came first the 1854 setting or the Crimean War, like which one right. Daphne decided. But I think, it, I think it does work in the narrative that this is where he ends up going. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to take it back to Jeffrey and like his appearance. I, d- I don't know if this is like, it feels like there is like a moral judgment attached to like syphilis as opposed to like malaria. And I feel like, I think Gaffney is much more deft than like another author, like Chell said earlier. She builds empathy for him, like shows like the, why he is the way he is, but he still does feel like a little bit othered. That was like my reading of it because he is like this ill person and like... Yeah, I think the primary feeling that I think you were supposed to get from any description of Jeffrey is like repulsion. Yeah. And I think... I just feel like it's kind of something that I don't quite get coming from Gaffney just because like she doesn't need to do that. Like she doesn't like there's enough of like his behaviors, like specifically the way that he he speaks to Anne in the beginning. Like Christy, even like not really being taken aback by his appearance still is kind of he's noting kind of like the 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 digs that he's getting in Anne, like how Anne gets very reserved. The way that Anne is very concerned about being alone with Jeffrey because of the things that he will say to her. I, I think that a lot of the really intense feelings that I got about Jeffrey, like the, the intense feelings of wanting to keep him away from Anne, have like literally nothing to do with what his breath smells like or yeah. or or anything like that. So I think like... I, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like interesting because it was so similar to the way that Jones was described in Gaywick. And like mm-hmm. that kind of the I, I think about that as just kind of like that's coming from a very, very uncharitable uh, narrator who's like mm-hmm. thinking these thoughts. Um, I didn't like it. I didn't know. I don't know. I don't have anything neat. I don't have any critiques for it, I guess. I don't. Yeah, it's, I think it's OK. We don't have like neat feelings about it. But I, yeah. I also just <laughs> wanted to verbally say that I felt like a little bit weird and that Jeffrey did feel like a little bit othered. And like the like you're saying, the way that he's mm-hmm. made to be like repulsive maybe wasn't needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is one of those like sticky things where it's like I think syphilis like works well as a metaphor but then also like syphilis is not metaphorical to everyone right. like and so it's like i it's like i get why Daphne uses it because the it is also interesting that this is just interesting like biologically that malaria and syphilis are both like cyclic disorders mm-hmm. it, there's mm-hmm. a character in a Kinsale book that has malaria right i think I'm i don't know. remember someone someone has attacks of malaria and i think in a book that i read i think it's Kinsale. yeah but it's like that it's cyclic where it's like he and I think that's t- one of the things that makes it hard for Anne is that Jeffrey has these like times when it's latent and he can he can be he's not under like acute attack from his illness. So this like cyclic nature of like his deterioration of his health is like causing more conflict for her. And it's like th- that works as a metaphor for abuse and it works as a metaphor for like the nature of his relationship, like b- like coming closer and pulling away, but also like she's giving him a, a thing as a metaphor like he does literally have it but it works as a narrative metaphor but also it's like a, a disease that is that people get othered for so it's like it, i think that it works structurally but then it also makes you feel like oh this is not necessarily like the kindest way of of doing this um even though it, it does 
it does work in the narrative. So I think that causes like sticky feelings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like because Jeffrey if we're gonna get a happily ever after and this woman is married to this man that like we have to Jeffrey does have to die. Yeah, so it's yeah. just like I don't know. Like it's... I understand why horse accidents are so popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was literally just about to bring that up. I was like, you could have put him on a horse gap. Yeah, just put him on a horse, please. <laughs> um but Yeah, if, if you're mean to your wife, do not get on a horse. <laughs> you cannot get on a horse if you are mean to a woman. Don't cross the streets with horses oh, and don't get on a horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you were an inconvenient wife, just don't have kids. Oh yeah, yeah. Childbirth. Don't don't do it. Wait, if you're like your husband was doting, but is like waiting for a more passionate second wife, like (laughs) forget it. Forget it. (laughs) Okay, so we've talked a bit about Jeffrey, and then like Anne and Jeffrey. I wanted to talk a little bit about Anne and Christy. Our friend Lauren, she is on TikTok, and I will link to her account and then like specifically this video. But she spoke about the priest character as paired with like what she called the temptress. And so I was just going to read a bit from this video she had. So the temptress is just a worldly woman. She could be a flea bag, an outcast, sex worker, a scientist. She's not religious or not in a way that the priest has any authority over her. The priest is mystical and godly and finds his faith and his celibacy challenged by the temptress. The celibacy part is important, which is why he's usually Catholic or in some situation where he should not be with her. Part of why it makes it a spicy trope. But they're both usually gender non-conforming and that they don't fill the gender roles they're expected to fill. And this trope tends to turn those gender Catholic roles inside out. He's gentle, restrained, and nurturing. She's brash and smart and nobody tells her what to do. I really like that the temptress and the priest subverts this heteropatriarchal Christian idea that women's sexuality is something to suppress and fear, whereas men are the gatekeepers and mouthpiece of all that is holy and you can't have anything else out of that. She then goes on to say she finds this pairing relies so much on the subversion that she struggled to find any stories that didn't include a heterosexual pairing. So I find this pairing interesting and I think that it is Christine Ann's dynamic where Anne's traveled more than other women of her time and has this kind of worldliness because of the circles her father moved in. She's the one who wants to have an affair instead of committing to marriage with Christy after they discover they think Jeffrey's dead. Christy's earnest in his faith and wants his parishioners to see his humanity outside of of his role as the vicar. Someone they could consult with if their faith flags. What do you think of this dynamic? So I think I said in my original TikTok about this book that I recommend it to people who read Fleabag. And I was like, I'm so surprised that people don't recommend this on books about like for Fleabag recommendations. And as Chels pointed out, it's possible that people read fewer romance novels from the 90s than um, <laughs> the people that I talked to. <laughs> um, but so Christy's father, a quote that we get from him that Christy reports to Anne and Anne writes down in her diary is that to be a priest is to be in love. And like that is like so Fleabag to me. Like that sounds like something that the priest in Fleabag would say. And I, so I thought about this in the context of the quote that Beth read and also books that I've been reading like for the podcast and not to sound like a broken record, but it does remind me of like a subversion of flower inversion, maybe a flowers from the storm and sunshine and shadow, which are two books that I connect together. But in that one, there's a very religious woman who's not necessarily part of a religious order and sort of a rake figure who's tempting her away. Mm. And then they have to sort of reconcile for a way for the relationship to work and for her to stay in her religion. I think those books are really subversive in their own way, even though maybe the gender roles are not being subverted in the way that the temptress and priest trope is. 
But what happens in both is the rake figure realizes that his brand of masculinity won't work on the button-up heroine. He has to try something else to sort of get to seduce her. Like what's worked in the past is not working, either because he has a disabling event, like in Flowers from the Storm, or just because she's not that impressed with that aspect of him. And then when talking about to love and to cherish, I do find I'm a little hesitant to say that it's subverting the heteropatriarchal Christian anything, though I do think that happens in this trope, just because I find this book expressly Christian, especially given that Anne is the one who sort of starts to explore Christie's view of religion by the end of the book. She's very much like, Christie has his view of Christianity and like, I'm going to do my own journey. She says even like, he, I think he says like, did you pray to my God at the end of the book? And she said, I prayed to my God. And it's like that, that's important for Anne for it to be distinguished, but she does explore Christianity more than her atheism from the beginning of the book. But I think Anne in particular just starts to realize that the organizing worldview is just that. It's an organization for someone, not a cheat code to determine in a, their behavior in advance, good or bad. Christie is not good because he's Christian. Christie is good and Christie is Christian. And it's like the, the quote that it's not because of God, Christie is born this way. Christie's good because he's good and he chooses to continue to be good. And at the beginning, she thinks Christy or Anne thinks that Christy has it all figured out because of this organization that she's halfway jealous of and halfway judgmental of. He, but he's unsure of so many things, especially I think this is where we see the closest thing that Christy has to a weakness is that he's not sure where to place Anne. He's like, is she tempting me to sin or is she my salvation? Like he he's working through this worldview and he also feels this like acute pain based on loving her. And he's like, is this a trial that I have to work my way through? Or is it a signal that I'm sinning? Anne thinks that Christy's pain, like faith is a painkiller, but it's actually causing Christy great anguish. And I think that's sort of the arc of Anne's relationship to Christianity is that she realizes that she's had one view of this religion as like a monolith. And then Christy has this very like personal faith that she she learns to understand by the end of the book. Yeah, I think something that, kind of brings them together in my mind is that they both kind of have like an exalted loneliness so like Anne is desperate for affection and friendship but she can't quite like thoroughly break that ice in Wickerly because as a Viscountess she's too high stationed to be like a true comrade to like the other folks in the town and this is pretty evident like when she needs to leave the Harvest Festival early because she recognizes that they can't really cut loose with her present because she's kind of like an employer at that point and then she also knows that Miss Weedy won't be her friend, That like, but also that Miss Weedy would be upset to know that she had noticed that. So it's not anything out of malice. It's just not something that would have occurred to her to be something that Anne wanted. And then so similarly, like Chrissy kind of has these feelings of like, I wish people would see me as a person. He remarks on it a few times. Like people are often surprised that I'm funny. Like people are surprised <laughs> that I have like, uh, that I have these thoughts. Uh, people are surprised that I can get grumpy. And like, I think that he kind of has like a kind of an alone and company type feeling. Like, I think that he finds kind of like that further connection with Anne. I don't have to, too much to add on their own like uh, religions, but I do really like what Emma said about Anne does kind of see it as more of a personal thing. Like, I think the institution itself was really what was like throwing her off and was something that I don't think that she like, because when have these organizations ever served Anne? Like, when have any of these, she took her holy vows or whatever, or she took her vows in marriage and those were not a very Christian thing to do. So I, I, I do I do like how that was. I think seeing Christy as a vicar, like as that like service of a community, like really changes things for her. Mm-hmm. Um, where again, it's it, that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, like I don't think Gafty's coming down and like the provinces are better categorically than everything 
but the provinces are where this kind of like faith community can exist where it's like uh he's like a shepherd to his his flock in a way that Anne has never seen before partially because she hasn't had a community and also because it, it like the shepherd to the flock can also be a corrupted individual there's no guarantee that that's a good thing but Christie is a good man and like that role serves the community and Anne, Anne is very interested in serving her new home and figuring out like where she fits in there so I think having that model for like a new perception of of religion is is helpful and I, like if this mm-hmm. book was set in England or in London I don't think Anne would have that same experience or that wouldn't be an option for her to her witness I feel like Anne has this perception of herself that like nobody likes her and it might also be being com- coming from the fact that like she is kind of like the town employer so people can't exactly be themselves so but it, and then it maybe feeds that idea that she has about herself like I can't be a minister's wife. Like I can't be going around doing good works, but people actually like her a lot more <laughs> than she realizes. And she is actually like a very community oriented person. So it's kind of like this paradigm shift she has to have about herself in the book where, no, she's actually very approachable and has good ideas and like consistently is like doing activities that people like want to attend and like be with her and be in company with her. Okay, um, so Emma wanted to talk a little bit about Italy, and Anne has this connection to Ravenna, like we talked about before, she lived there until she was seven, like at that point when her mom died, her and her father moved away, and there's this diary entry I wanted to read, because I like highlighted it, and it, I don't know why it's like just gets me, but she says, dreamt of Ravenna last night, I was a child again, and my mother was teaching me to swim, woke up sobbing. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, let's talk so about wanted, the connection to Italy a little bit. I wanted to talk about Italy because I I'm always ready to talk about Italy in a Victorian novel. It's my it's my there's nothing I love more than when someone goes to Italy and like has feelings. Um, it happens in Middle March. It happens in a room with a view. So Anne is lives in Ravenna for the longest period. This is like what she thinks of as like her childhood home, and she's convinced for a lot of the book that going to Italy is the answer to all of her problems. Like once Jeffrey, she thinks he dies, she's like, "Oh, I'll just go to Ravenna. Like I'll I'll go back there." And uh, even Christy's like, "Is that really what you want to do? Do you have anyone there? Do you have a community there?" She's like, "That was like the place that I was happiest." So she wants to go back there after she thinks Jeffrey has died. She's really othered in England because of her being brought up in Italy. She sort of has this uncanny valley. People (laughs) respond to her. She doesn't know how to do the English thing. But I thought it was interesting that Ravenna was the place that Gaffney has her be from because it has this like specific connection to Dante. So this is where Dante was buried, not his native Florence. Dante is like the most famous Florentine in the world, but he was exiled from Florence for political reasons. So he's famously not buried in Florence. He is buried in Ravenna. So this is really Ravenna's claim to fame. People would know Ravenna for two reasons. It's this or the Byzantine mosaics and the relics of the church that Christy and Anne actually go see when they go there on their honeymoon. And then I think the Dante connection is not totally tenuous because Anne actually quotes Dante twice in the book. She references the second circle of hell, Francesco and Paolo, which is the two lovers that are condemned for their affair. And they're like in a twister, like always reaching for each other. And she also, she quotes the the entrance to hell, like all, all ye who enter here. And then Anne and Christie also quote St. Augustine to get to each other when they're trying to convince each other first. Anne's trying to convince him to have an affair and she he's trying to convince her to get married. So they're sort of like using Catholicism at each other, which I thought was charming in my way. So it, to me, it's interesting that Anne is the atheist in the relationship, but has these connections to Catholic philosophers. And so the connection between Dante and Augustine that I would sort of notice 
is the concept of the vita contemplativa. So contemplative life. This is sort of the idea that like thinking about things is a process, it's like a religious process. And Christie's actually the one who's really interested in contemplation. And I thought about this, the, my favorite part of the whole book is when Anne writes in her diary, like, you won't believe it, diary. He's given me up for Lent. Um, <laughs> right. I just, like, it's, it's so romantic in like the way that like Christie would find romantic. He's like, oh, this is actually, I'm honoring you by giving you up for Lent. <laughs> And because he's contemplating his relationship with her. So Anne has these sort of like secular connections to these places that are, are religiously connected through Christie. And I think also it's interesting that Gaffney signals this with like what Christie's, how he processes his own religion, because he's like the post-Reformation Protestant vicar who we might more strongly associate with stereotypes of like Protestant work ethic or suppression of spirituality in like in sort of like a deprivation sort of way. But actually he has this very like personal connection and into to contemplation which is more associated with these like catholic sources so i just think that's interesting and i think it's a very astute of gaffney to sort of string these things together i don't know how like strong of the connection she's intending but i feel like the ravenna claim like since it, it's it's most famously connected to dante i feel like there's there's a connection there i feel like you just found like an easter egg that gaffney <laughs> laid in and <laughs> just see who would pick up on it <laughs> Yeah, if people go to Italy, I, I will, I'll Google until I find out, like, why you went there um, and, like, why you're in that city. Um, but Ravenna is great, and the mosaics are great. They, they don't go to the church that Dante's buried at. In, um, they go to the church that, uh, actually, Napoleon's sister is buried at. Uh, <laughs> that's where they go on their honeymoon. I checked. I was like, I don't, it, it's not the, Santa Maria Maggiore is not where Dante is buried, but they do go to a church that lots of people are buried in, in Ravenna. Yeah, I I don't have anything to add. I think Italy's cool. <laughs> we got fun facts from Emma. I don't. Is there anything else we want to throw in there about this book or books coming up? We could talk about how we feel about Sebastian since we're we've met him and he's we've met him sort of. I guess we've met him through letters. You've met yeah. You've met him through letters. He seems nice at this point. I know. Right? Like, <laughs> you, we have no idea what's coming. He seems like a chill guy. Just, yeah, just right. stay at the house until you're ready to go. <laughs> well, Anne gets warned that he's a rake. Like, right. But also, it seems like everybody's being a busybody about him being a rake. And she's like, right. oh, I don't know if I care. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So we do meet Sebastian, who is the main character, we won't say hero, of of the second book. So Sebastian is going to be the new Viscount uh, now that Jeffrey has actually died. He is the biggest rake of all. I would say he's a malevolent seducer. Just he is a malevolent seducer. Yeah, that's not really spoilery. You find out right away. Yeah. <laughs> he tells you. He's yeah. <laughs> he, has, he has no aspersions about. He's like, this is how I am. <laughs> he's uh yeah. You see like a sort of side to Sebastian that you don't get until late till later in his book. Actually, in the first book, he does make like callous, not callous, but he does kind of like make jokes about hoisting Anne out of, the, right. out of that house. But he also like writes what she says is like very sympathetic letters about Jeffrey's death, even though, but while not pretending to have any affection for Jeffrey because he barely knew Jeffrey. Right. So I think that it's very, um, I could see like, I'm so kind of jealous of like, readers in 1995 like reading this book and being like who is this man and then like <laughs> I I'm now I'm should I have said jealous I don't know but like <laughs> I could see like that would be like so enticing where you'd be like oh you've got so much is ahead of you yes 
yeah, I'm excited for him. And his 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 lack of buy-in to Wickerly is one of those things where they're like, oh, like he's he's now going to be tethered to this place. Like, what's the conflict going to be there? Because he's like, whatever, I'm a Viscount now. Who cares? Um, <laughs> <laughs> soon we all will. Well, I hope everyone's excited to hear our next episode where we dive into To Have and To Hold. It's, it's a lot. It's my favorite. Of, well, I haven't read the third one yet. But by the time someone listens to this, I'll have read it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's, I think has been like a seminal book for all of us. Um, Thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformed rakes. Please rate and review. It helps us a lot. And thank you again. We'll see you next time.